everyone and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. And you're looking like a lumberjack today, Ben. <laughs> yes. It's um, good. Very Canadian. Thank you for listening to us today. <laughs> right, that's what we usually say. I have a toque on because I didn't want to deal with my hair today. For American friends, that's a beanie. Sure, but you should call it a toque. Call things by what their actual name is, folks. <laughs> Be correct. And yeah, so I didn't want to deal with my hair today. So uh, I, I have a toque on indoors. Sarah came by and commented on it because like with my toque and my beard, I just looked like, you know, very Canadian. So I decided to lean into it. So I'm wearing like a, a plaid shirt and jeans now. Yeah. I think the only way that you could lean into it more is if you're wearing the Canadian tuxedo. Right. Yeah. I, um, I used to have a denim shirt and I got rid of it at some point. Mm. And, um, I have since been told by people that that was a mistake. I mean, where are you ever going to find another denim shirt, Ben? I know. The other kind of look you have going on, especially if you had the denim shirt would be a very like hippie look very 70s ish yeah yeah in that like hipster 70s like kind of like i'm off the grid man kind of way (laughs) i suppose yeah which uh leans very nicely into what movie we're watching this week sort of yes uh this week we are watching frankenstein 1970 from 1958 Directed by Howard W. Koch. So yes, this is a Frankenstein movie set in the far-off future of 1970. Twelve years in the future. (laughs) The big sort of, you know, trivia point with this movie is that it stars Boris Karloff Mm -hmm. um, returning to do a Frankenstein movie after many, many years uh, and significantly playing Dr. Frankenstein not the monster, mm-hmm. which for all the movies where Karloff's played mad scientists, you would think that would have been something that had happened already by now, that someone would have done that by now. But yeah, we had to wait all the way till 1970 to do it. <laughs> I guess because almost all the earlier Frankenstein movies were universal, um, save for like the recent Hammer revival. Um, and at Universal, like Karloff was like, you know, the monster. Although I think he played a mad scientist in one of them once, didn't he? He sure did. Well, why don't you tell us about Karloff's history with Frankenstein movies okay. so that we understand the metatextual baggage coming into this <laughs> film? Sure. Um, so folks might have heard some of this stuff before, but here we go. Boris Karloff was born in 1887, and he had been acting since 1919 as an extra in bit parts. Um, He was cast as Frankenstein's monster based nearly solely on appearance, but also because Lugosi turned down the role. Yeah. Um, Which kind of, I think, exemplifies how, like, everyone was just like, yeah, just get someone who's, like, 
big and tall and can look a little scary mm-hmm. in this. Like no one really cares mm-hmm. about this role. So when this skyrocketed Karloff to fame, everyone was surprised. Karloff at this time would have been in his mid 40s. You can even see the way that it affected his career by looking at some of his roles in the year after Frankenstein, such as 1932's Scarface or The Old Dark House, where he has like one scene in Scarface uh, as a goon. And then in The Old Dark House, he plays, I think his name is Morgan, but he is another, it's another silent role and he's just like big and domineering and spooky. Mm-hmm. Versus 1932's The Mummy, which is kind of cashing in on Karloff's cachet as a horror icon, as well as the cachet of the Dracula formula, or 1932's Mask of Fu Manchu, which is like purposely hiring Karloff because of his cachet. Mm -hmm. In the late 30s, Karloff began branching out from lead horror parts, such as in the Mr. Wong series. And in 1939, He came back to the Frankenstein story with Son of Frankenstein, and this was kind of the last straw for him with playing the creature. So 1931's Frankenstein, he brings a lot of pathos to the role. Bride of Frankenstein in 1935, he's able to bring speech to the monster and gives a kind of uh, psychology to him beyond just being a, a... mute monster with son of frankenstein as good as we consider that movie it did relegate karloff's monster back to being mute um and ultimately having no agency because he was he would just be sent off to go kill people by the ghosties character yeah that's really like the point in the series where the monster stops being the focus of his own series Mm -hmm. which like to be fair it's called Frankenstein, right? The story is about the doctor, not necessarily the monster, but the way he played the monster brought so much emphasis on that story. I can see why he would be disappointed when it, you know, drifted away from him. Yeah, the first two films, you can really see, like, the monster is a co-protagonist, practically. Yeah. Yeah. This led, ultimately, to... um Karloff wanting to look outside of Universal. So he started to kind of dip his toes outside of Universal, still in horror, with The Man Who Changed His Mind in 1936, which I think kind of started that trend of him being a an older doctor character, um, which he would return again to in 1939's The Man They Could Not Hang. Again, he's a scientist and he continues working in that archetype in Columbia's horror series. Series feels like a misnomer because they aren't connected plot-wise, but mm. he's playing the same character basically in each of them. It's a formula. Exactly. Horror would die as a genre in 1939, so Karloff would transition to horror comedy where the joke is a fish out of water. Um, And he really seemed to enjoy that kind of stuff. Um, The case in point is 1940s stage play Arsenic and Old Lace. Um, But you even see it on films, such as with 1942's The Boogeyman Will Get You. Yeah. Now, explicitly in Arsenic and Old Lace, and probably implicitly in The Boogeyman Will Get You, 
he is leveraging his like horror icon status but I think he's having a bit of fun with it also seen with the I guess there's this celebrity baseball game in 1940 where he appeared as Frankenstein's monster hit a home run and then uh, during the running of the bases he in like intentionally but like it was part of the gag trampled buster keaton oh that's funny (laughs) so you know he you know he's just appearing at a baseball game it's it's fun stuff yeah in 1944 karloff returned to universal and returned to the frankenstein story but not as the monster nor as the titular doctor um, this time he played just a, an average Joe doctor, a different doctor, and this would have been the first of the Monster Rally movies. He described it as like a monster clam bake that was utterly ridiculous. So he was getting really fed up with the fact that these were just like silly, comic booky, not really delving into, I think, the the true power of the horror genre. Yeah, he's like just, you know, a mad scientist in that. That's um, House of Frankenstein, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Karloff is struggling um, because now he's relegated to like these horror comedies, these things that, you know, it's not really scratching his the itch that he has as an actor. Mm. Um, But then that kind of changed when he fell back in love with acting and back in love with horror with Val Luton, beginning with The Body Snatcher in 1945 he still would do some horror comedy um such as with 1949's abbott and costello meet the killer boris karloff so still kind of you know trading on his cachet as a horror icon with the 1950s he is coming back to horror even despite his age we've seen him in the black castle voodoo island and most recently in 1958's the haunted strangler when he is 71 years old. Mm-hmm. He's still pretty spry in that movie, though. Absolutely. So it's interesting in looking at the story of the films that he's done, and especially how he's dabbled in and out of horror, is you see him really loving the horror genre when it's delving more into the psychology of whatever character he's playing, be it a mute monster, a... Um, sadistic guy in the black cat Mm. um a uh blackmailing body snatcher like he really enjoys being able to bite into the meat of a role yeah um and i think that's like whether it's horror or not but it seems like he really jibes with it in horror yeah absolutely and i think over the years like he's recognized that his cachet comes from Frankenstein and he's made peace with it. I think at this age, um, when he was younger, especially when he was getting so typecast, I think he grew frustrated, especially when the monster was relegated to being a mindless brute in son of Frankenstein. Um, but now you can kind of see he's made peace with it. And maybe because he has so many years between, you know, when he hit it big and now maybe that's why he feels like it's okay to come back to that story. Yeah, I find that like the roles that let Karloff dig into that psychology are his better ones. Mm-hmm. Um, like the Haunted Strangler isn't good, 
But he's good in it. Yeah, and it's definitely a role that lets him play as an actor and have a complex psychology and, and all that kind of stuff, right? Absolutely. So... In 1957, Karloff had signed a three-picture deal with producers Aubrey Schenk and Howard W. Koch of Bel Air Productions at a rate of $25,000 per film. Now, Bel Air had produced The Black Sleep and Pharaoh's Curse, and the first film that Karloff made under this deal was 1957's Voodoo Island, which we watched in episode 200 and ranked at number 178. It's not good. No. It has some like neat ideas with the carnivorous plants, but yeah. With Karloff under contract to them, and the recent success of Curse of Frankenstein from Hammer and I Was a Teenage Frankenstein from AIP, the idea of shooting a new Frankenstein movie with Karloff in it was unnatural. Karloff had sworn never to do another Frankenstein picture, uh, but he was lured back in this case because for the first time he would be playing the scientist, not the monster. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Frankenstein, Baron von Frankenstein. Although in this case he is the, I believe, grandson or great-grandson of the original. Um, okay. For whatever reason, the original's name is Richard this time around <laughs> which is not victor or, or henry. henry yeah amazing a script was commissioned uh from writers richard h landau and george worthing yates landau we know from his scripts for the quatermass experiment pharaoh's curse and voodoo island while George Worthing Yates was the nephew of Herbert Yates, the head of Republic Pictures, and has a like long CV of sci-fi B-movies, including Them, Conquest of Space, It Came from Beneath the Sea, Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, The Flame Barrier, Attack of the Puppet People, War of the Colossal Beast, and Space Monster X7. Cool. Okay. The script was originally titled Frankenstein's Castle, and the film was to be shot in eight days on sound stages rented from Warner Brothers with a budget of $110,000, with the hope that Warner Brothers would then distribute the film. Karloff would work all eight days of shooting. That's a lot for like someone who's 70. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this time, instead of Reginald LeBorg, the film would be directed by Howard Koch himself. Koch had gotten his start as an assistant director at Universal International back in 1947, and he would go on after this to become head of film production at Paramount in 1964. He would become the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences until 1979, and he was also the producer of the televised Academy Awards ceremonies from 1972 to 1980. In 1990, he was the recipient of the Gene Herschelt Humanitarian Award, and in 1991, he was given the Frank Capra Achievement Award by the Directors Guild, and he passed away in 2001 at age 84. Cinematography for the film was handled by Carl Guthrie because he had recently shot the film too much too soon for Warner Brothers. <laughs> what a title. For Warner Brothers on the same sets that were then redressed for Frankenstein's Castle. So he already knew how to light them quickly. Sure. Knows his way around. Makes sense. Yeah. 
Co-starring with Karloff is Tom Dugan, uh, who is best known as a radio and TV commentator. Born in Chicago in 1915, he developed an interest in broadcasting when he was assigned to Armed Forces Radio in the Second World War. In 1949, he was hired on at NBC uh, for their radio and TV stations in Chicago for a nightly 15-minute sports news commentary, uh, and he became fairly popular. Dugan uh, began speaking out on air about the involvement of Chicago mobsters and corrupt politicians in the management of professional boxing. He claimed on air that sports businessman James D. Norris had threatened to kill him. Norris demanded an apology, and when Dugan refused, NBC fired him, which made front-page news in Chicago. Yeah. Also, like, take some balls to call someone out like that. So ABC promptly hired him uh, (laughs) for a half-hour nightly sports commentary show on their Chicago TV station. Dugan would go right back to what he'd been talking about before, um, calling out the mob, and they would actually end up giving him a one-hour late-night talk show, um, which was actually the first of its kind. Okay. Um, And on that talk show, Dugan would continue his attacks against organized crime, as well as many other topics. (laughs) His, like, like what? Like, I'm just curious. Like, like talk what? show topics. I don't know. Okay. Um, it was the first TV talk show that was like all talk show, like not a variety show. Sure. His popularity was such that ABC gave him an afternoon talk show as well and a Saturday evening variety show. That's so much talking. In what, 19- what does he have to talk about besides like still going on about the mob? Yo, how many shows did like Regis Philbin have at one time? <laughs> like... <laughs> Okay, fair. Okay. Yeah, it's a talk show. You have guests on to talk. In 1955, Dugan was named in the divorce case of Cook County Judge Daniel Corvelli with the accusation during the case that the judge's wife had slept with Dugan, uh, cheating on the judge. Dugan denied this allegation on air and claimed that Judge Corvelli was in the pocket of the mob. <laughs> Corvelli sentenced Dugan to 10 days in jail for contempt of court. Later, uh, during an investigation of the Chicago mob, uh, Corvelli was identified as, in fact, being in the pocket of Chicago mobsters. Wow. So Dugan was pardoned by the governor of Illinois. Yeah. (laughs) Wild. Fleeing Chicago. (laughs) When you put it like that, it's like the mobsters are chasing after them. Correct. (laughs) They were. Dugan came to L.A. in 1956, and he would host a number of different TV shows on, like, three or four different independent L.A. TV stations. Uh, He also began appearing in films around this time, such as this one. In 1969, he died in a car accident. Like, was it proven that it was accidental? When the mobs involved, Ben. I don't know. We'll have to dig up the case files, Sarah. Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. Co-star Don Barry, better known as Red Barry, was once a minor star, but his glory days were far behind him at this point. 
Born Donald Barry de Acosta in Houston, Texas in 1912. He was originally discovered by John Wayne at like a football game <laughs> and introduced to some movie producers. And in 1940, he appeared in his breakout role, which was the Republic serial, The Adventures of Red Rider, based on the popular Western comic strip of the same name. Barry would go on to do like Westerns and war pictures. Uh, he would work with bigger budgets at bigger studios, but nothing was ever successful as Red Rider. So by 1958, he had been through two divorces and was mostly appearing in supporting roles on TV. After a domestic dispute with his third wife in 1980, he shot and killed himself. Oh, no. 25-year-old, 6-foot-8 professional wrestler Mike Lane, a.k.a. Tarzan Mike, appears <laughs> in the film as the monster. Uh, and makeup for both Karloff and the monster is handled by Gordon Bow. Do you think um, Karloff gave him any pointers about how to play the monster? We'll see. <laughs> Charlotte Austin, the daughter of crooner Jean Austin, features in the film as one of the lead female parts. Uh, we last saw her in The Man Who Turned to Stone, where we enjoyed her performance as social worker Carol Adams. The film's music is by Paul Dunlap, who did all four of AIP's teen monster movies. Okay. Yeah, pretty good stuff. Ultimately, Warner Brothers made the decision not to distribute Frankenstein's castle. Schenck ended up selling the picture to Allied Artists for $250,000, immediately putting himself and Coke in the black, and Allied released the picture on July 20th, 1958, on a double bill with Queen of Outer Space. Um, but which one was, like, first? Pretty sure this one. Okay. Yeah. I guess it has like the star power of Karloff. Yeah. And Queen of Outer Space was made by a bunch of nobodies. Uh, <laughs> no offense to the makers of Queen of Outer Space. <laughs> to give the film a more sci-fi futuristic touch so that it would fit into that like double bill better and sort of into like the sci-fi horror trend that was sort of, you know, contemporary, as well as to explain how Frankenstein can just buy an atomic reactor for his house in the film. Uh, <laughs> the film was retitled to Frankenstein 1970, which was thought to be far enough in the future that um, basically being able to buy a private atomic reactor would be more commonplace. <laughs> you know, that like by 1970, it would be the same thing as buying like a gas generator for your home. Sure. I mean, when did the microwave come out? The first microwave ovens became commercially available for like home kitchens from uh, Sharp in 1961. Okay, yeah, because I feel like that would be futuristic. Mm. And that's only like three, four years away. So I, in that context, I can see why they would think that this would be a possibility. <laughs> right. Um, however, other than the title, nothing in the movie suggests that it is set in the future oh, in any damn. way. Okay, um, I wanted to, like, see, you know, what guesses about the future did they get right, you know? Sure. Bell Bottoms, Disco. Yeah, it seems like when they were making the movie, they just figured it was set in, like, contemporary times. And sure. then they, after the fact, decided to turn it into a movie set in the future. Did they have anyone come in to, like, do any pickup lines or anything to, like, support that? Not to my knowledge, I think there's just nothing other than the title to tell okay. you it's set in the future. That and 
you know, Frankenstein buying his own atomic reactor as if that's a normal <laughs> thing to do. Sure, sure, sure. The film received mixed reviews at the time of its release, and it's not really held in any higher regard today. <laughs> Ironically, uh, due to the purchase of Allied Artists Library by the studio, the film's rights are currently held by Warner Brothers. Uh, so Aubrey Shank got his wish after all. And you can see the movie on DVD in Warner Brothers Karloff and Lugosi Horror Classics set or in the recent Blu-ray release from Warner Home Archive. Karloff would never make a third film with Shank and Coke. They announced the next title as King of the Monsters, but they kept delaying the start of production. Finally, Karloff asked that the Screen Actors Guild force the two producers to either begin shooting before July 1960 or else pay Karloff his agreed-upon fee and release him from his contract. Um, and King of the Monsters was canceled. So it was that second one that happened. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy of Frankenstein 1970, despite Ben's... Uh, context setting of it's not actually textual that it's in 1970 i will be playing bass lines in my heart <laughs> and thinking about disco um you're going to hear a brief musical interlude and when we come back we'll discuss frankenstein 1970 from 1958 directed by howard coke see you on the other side everybody <laughs> Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching Frankenstein 1970 from 1958, directed by Howard Koch. Sarah, what did you think? Uh, it's very fun. Yes. Um, and Karloff is chewing scenery. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he's having he's a good time. He's never eaten anything in his life. He's <laughs> just like munching down. Yeah. Like Pac-Man mm -hmm. up in here. Um, what about you? I actually really liked this. Um, it looks great. It features good performances. It has a pretty good script. Um, yeah, it's, it's lots of fun. There are some things I take issue with, but for the most part, this really surprised me. Yeah, same. But how about I dive into it? Yeah, absolutely. Tell us what it's about. So it opens with a scene right out of a horror movie because it is. It's, they're making a horror movie here. Um, it's a meta movie, mm -hmm. which is a lovely surprise because I fucking love that shit. <laughs> um, basically, to commemorate the 235th? 230th. 30th year anniversary of Frankenstein, which was a real occurrence in the 1700s in this movie's universe, um, they are making a TV film. Mm-hmm. Um, Baron Victor von Frankenstein, the last of the line of the proud Frankenstein lineage, has allowed this crew to shoot at the castle, um, basically to try to raise funds for a new atomic reactor he needs for his lab. 
there are many characters here, and so I'm just going to list some of them. Mm -hmm. So we have the butler, Shooter, Frankenstein's friend, uh, slash also bookkeeper, I think, uh, Gottfried. Frankenstein's longtime live-in companion, Gottfried. Yes. They're gay, 100%. Uh, This is my reading. Um, There is, of the crew, uh, we have... Carolyn, who is our scream queen, um, director Douglas Rowe, which is quite fun. Mm-hmm. Um, his secretary and also ex-wife, Judy. I didn't catch what his job is, but there's a guy named Mike here. I think he's um, Carolyn's agent. Okay. Yeah. The why that would mean he'd be on set, I don't know. I don't know. Cinematographer Morgan. And the actor playing uh, the monster, Hans Himmler, who uh, also has his translator on set because he doesn't speak a word of English. Mm-hmm. So Gottfried is worried about his friend. Um, they get some exposition in about how Frankenstein. Um, so he has like a bit of disfigurement on his face with like this nasty scar and uh he has a bad limp and stuff like that. And all of this disfigurement is because um, the Nazis took Frankenstein and tried to force him to do surgeries for them. Yeah. The Nazis tortured Frankenstein for presumably his like crazy Frankenstein scientific knowledge and he wouldn't give it to them. Keep in mind, this is also like the great grandson. Yeah. I don't remember. They might've said great, great grandson, but yes. Yes. So like, anyways, so that's, that's wild. That's wild, Ben. Although it is like more of a recognition of the fact that like Germany is a real place that exists in time than like the Universal movies True. ever gave us. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, so the exposition is like, oh, you're such a tortured soul, Frankenstein and Frankenstein being like, Yes, but I shall continue with my work that I will not tell anyone about and stop asking about it, Gottfried. To give a little bit of lay of the land of this castle that we are set in, we have our main room on the main floor. Upstairs are the bedrooms and downstairs is the crypt. And uh, hidden within the crypt is the secret laboratory of uh, Frankenstein's. Um, Now, unfortunately for Shudder, the butler... um, (laughs) it's funny because it rhymes and i only just realized that Mm. um he stumbles upon the secret entranceway to the lab and rather than going like huh i work in castle frankenstein if i see a secret passageway no i didn't he grabs his lantern and heads on down i'm just surprised that he doesn't already know about the lab yeah he's worked here his entire life yeah and it's castle Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Yeah. So he comes down and sees what's on the slab. <laughs> and Frankenstein's like, well, I guess I have to kill you, Shudder. <laughs> and he he brings Shooter in using hypnosis powers. Uh, not Dracula type powers. He just has like a shiny scalpel and hypnotizes him because he's a doctor. He knows how to do that. For sure. 
Frankenstein takes Shooter's um, internal organs, his brain, etc., and transfers it over into the creature. We get a nice um, shot of a, uh, I guess not live, but a real heart. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if it was a real human heart. It might be a cow's heart. Probably like, yeah, an animal heart of some kind. Um, But it is real. And uh, we also get some nice close-ups of uh, fake eyes Mm -hmm. that Frankenstein drops. And so he's like, well, fuck. Guess my creature needs some eyes. Which, which then is like the main driving MacGuffin of the movie. Yeah, because um, his equipment arrives for the at- atomic power and he uses that to bring the monster to life, um, who he calls Shooter, because, you know, it's all of Shooter's internal organs and brain. Yeah, I think I think the fact that it's Shooter's brain is the yeah the main thing here. Um. But he's like, don't worry, Shooter, we're like, we'll get you some eyes. <laughs> um, okay, so since he's blind, Frankenstein commands Shooter to go after some of the crew. And here's where I'm going to take a quick pause and give some, like, insight into the melodrama going on on this set. Mm-hmm. So, as mentioned before, Judy is director Rose's ex-wife. He also has several other ex-wives and she is constantly ribbing him. Ribbing implies that it's friendly. Yeah. No, she's like riding his ass about like what you're going to go after Carolyn now. Like, which I mean, he's going after Carolyn now. Yeah. She's just being like a real bee. Yeah. Like I, okay. So she's being a huge bitch about it, but like, I want to sort of put my foot down about the fact that I think she's totally, in, in the line. right? Well, yeah. Yes, but also she, like, treats Carolyn poorly. Yeah, she's taking it like, out on Carolyn a bit, which isn't fair. She should be warning Carolyn that the director is predatory. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's a fun element in this movie. Um, Mike, Carolyn's agent, has, was an old flame of Judy, and he's trying to go again, and Judy's like, no. He's like, oh, you still carry the torch for the director, huh? Well, call me when it's over. And, you know, is is weird about it. I mean, he's not weird about it. He's Well, that... he's weird about it because he won't fucking leave her alone when he's drunk. Yeah, but like, unfortunately, like, that's not really weird. That's just... Unfortunate? Yeah, unfortunate. Fair. Yeah. Judy does not like Roe, but unfortunately she is still in love with him and that is a problem and you know it's mike's problem basically (laughs) morgan the cinematographer is just here to do his job yes (laughs) he's just employed (laughs) yeah and after the opening bit of like hey it's hans himmler doing monster stuff he does get hired to replace shooter as the butler briefly but that's really the last we see of him yeah he complains about not wanting to finish the movie because it's too scary for him and he doesn't like doing it and they clearly just hired some random german guy because he was super tall um yeah and then after shooter goes missing frankenstein's just like yeah he's the butler now and then we never see him again yeah it's a little bit of a loose a loose thread in this movie so with that out of the way when shooter blind shooter goes to go after the director row he instead 
captures Judy, kills her and brings her down to the lab. And Frankenstein's like, well, fuck, I can't use her eyes. Like, they're not going to match with your chromosomes or whatever. So, like, now we just have, like, a dead person. Great. You know, I don't know if he really gives a good reason. No, he doesn't. Um, For why they can't use Judy's eyes. I think it's just meant to be like, she's a woman. You fucked up. You need man eyes. Exactly. Is sort of the implication anyway. But I don't think that's how transplant organ stuff works no i just wanted to point out that this movie from 1958 does not use the word chromosome no so now uh frankenstein's had to come up with like oh yeah shooter went to go visit his family out at the old farm where he can (laughs) run free with the other shooters yeah uh and now he also has to cover up like why judy left now she happened to leave after like mike was being Mike at her door um and so he thinks that he drove Judy away by being like overbearing the director Roe um I keep saying that because you can just call him Roe that's fine okay you don't have to keep saying that he's the director um Roe thinks that she just couldn't cut couldn't handle working with him couldn't cut it yeah she had personal problems with these people. So the story that Frankenstein comes up with is like, she was emotionally distraught and left. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, whatever. Okay. Also important to note, I guess, is that Frankenstein's been real creepy towards Carolyn. Carolyn's like 18 and Frankenstein's like 70. I don't know where you're getting these ages, but yeah, Frankenstein, I mean, Karloff's like, 71 so that seems fair um but carolyn is i think it's i'm gonna be talking about this in the discussion so i think it's worth pointing out judy's a brunette carolyn's blonde and carolyn gets to be the hot one okay um but in any case she's much younger oh for sure so it's also like creepy old man is what i'm trying to get out here for the dynamic for sure um So doing his job, cinematographer Morgan takes Carolyn around uh, the vault to do some test shots and like see how things might look. Um, And after he gets left alone down there, uh, Shooter the monster uh, comes out and gets him. Mm -hmm. And we're sitting here on the couch going like, yeah, get the cinematographer's eyes. Exactly. Great choice. Turns out his blood type is A and is a rare kind of person whose eyes cannot be transplanted. It's one of the few times in any of these kinds of movies that anyone ever acknowledges that you can't just grab anyone's fucking body type, anyone's fucking body parts and like shove them into another body and it's fine. Yeah. To be fair, that was that one Frankenstein one where like the trans the brain transplant didn't work because of the blood type. Right. And he went blind. But yes, absolutely. So they're like, well, fuck, now let's cover up the cinematographer leaving. Um, and Frankenstein's cover is like, yeah, he said he needed to go pick up like a special lens from Frankfurt. I don't know. It's like, yeah, that's what cinematographers do. That's my experience with them. But the director, Ro, he's just had enough. He's like, I can't do anything without my cinematographer. So he gets the police and, and the police are like, Oh, man, they're not here. Yeah, they're not here. Um, Baron Frankenstein says that it's fine. So I guess it's fine. Super corrupt. No, they're just, <laughs> they're they're just, just incompetent. Yeah. 
I mean, I got to say I'm on Rose's side here because like, yeah, there's maybe explanations for all of these people going missing, but like, it's like five people by this point in like two days. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Now, Gottfried confronts Frankenstein and he's like, you and I both know Shooter don't have family. And I don't know about these other two, but Frankenstein, you got to tell me what's up. We've lived together for several years. Yes. We're common law at this point. <laughs> we share everything with each other. You don't keep secrets from me. You're the last of your family line with no heirs for some reason. Yes, it's it's pretty... I don't think the writers are making it this clear, but it's pretty fucking clear that they're gay <laughs> together. Frankenstein, are you Frankensteining <laughs> again? You need to tell me if you're Frankensteining, Frankenstein. <laughs> And Frankenstein's like, how's your eyesight, Godfrey? <laughs> yeah, let me tell you everything. Come down, come down. And um, yeah, he kills Godfrey for his eyes. Which at this point, it's like, you're doing such a bad job of this, Frankenstein. So bad, so bad. So by this point, the director has made his way down to the police station and is like, doing their jobs by saying like, look, this is the only taxi driver in town. He's never seen these people. This is the guy who runs the train station. He never saw these people leave town. Clearly something's up. Come check out the castle. <laughs> Fuck. Do you know how much this is costing me But for delays on this film? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> While Roe is out, uh, Frankenstein hypnotizes Mike to get him out of the way and then manages to get Shooter to go up and capture Carolyn. Now, Carolyn made friends with Shooter when he was alive. She gave him a scarf, which seemed to be like the only gift he had ever received oh, yeah. in his life. Yeah, the he way was he like, responded. Oh, he was like on the verge of tears. It he was, was like Dobby got a sock. Yeah, exactly. Like that exactly. level of emotion. <laughs> Um, and so she, after coming to, after being like, after fainting, uh, is like, no shooter, like, don't take me downstairs. <laughs> Keep in mind, shooter is completely covered up like a mummy with like this big mask cast over his head. Yeah. With a like squared off top of the head, which I think is kind of funny. And then like eye holes. So you know, he can see. you know how Rocky looks in Rocky Horror Picture Show before you see that he's like a muscular dude in short shorts. Yeah. It's that. Yeah. It's exactly that. Exactly. But she, she hears Frankenstein calling him shooter. So she's like, Oh shooter. Like don't, don't hurt me. Um, and he begins to listen to her and take her back upstairs just as the police arrive. And now Frankenstein can hear the police have arrived and he's like, well, fuck. Okay. I guess I'm caught. Uh, let's overload this reactor so they, they won't take me alive. Um, so he goes to do that. But then Shooter comes down into the lab and he's like, no, Shooter, like you're going to die if you're here with me. And Shooter's like throwing a fit, destroying the lab. It feels like it's a little late for Frankenstein to be worried about whether Shooter's going to die or not. Yeah. So the reactor overloads. Um, there's a ton of like radiation and steam, whatever. Next, we see uh, someone in like the hazmat suit testing, says to the police chief, like, hey, you're OK to come in. And they see that Frankenstein's dead and there's like this like bandaged up thing. So they break open the cast on the head and 
dun 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 it's Boris Karloff. <laughs> <laughs> but um so it's Frankenstein without his disfigurements. Yeah. And Ro and Mike discover the uh tape recordings Frankenstein made um to like catalog what he was doing and it ends with the voiceover of him saying like you were to carry on the Frankenstein lineage. Mm-hmm. The end. So yeah, there's like some loose ends in this movie. But for the most part, I think the script is pretty smart. Um, it benefits from a depiction of the film crew that feels true, even if it's a little bit exaggerated for dramatic <laughs> purposes. I think that Red Berry gives a really good performance as Roe. I don't know. It's just like he's an asshole, but he's usually right, which feels like the right characterization <laughs> for a movie director. Um, Straight from the horse's mouth, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Um, he, he's really dynamic, um, and charismatic, um, and kind of commands the screen when he's on it. Good Um, suits. Good suits. He, he has like a Denny Crane kind of energy to him a bit. Um, I don't know. He just reminded me of like William Shatner in that role for some reason. But yeah, I really like him. I think that Charlotte Austin does a really great job as Judy. Yeah. She manages to bring in a level of like sympathy yeah. that I could feel for her um, until she started taking it out on Carolyn. Cause then I, I got really frustrated with it, but I mean like it, it's not like her fault. It, that was just me reacting to her behavior. Mm. Yeah, man. Uh, I think the script gives like Karloff a lot of really great speeches throughout. Absolutely. And his delivery of them, like he absolutely is the star of the show here. Oh, for sure. And he is milking every bit of it. He does a really great job of making it like you're laughing at this whole thing and you're enjoying every bit of it, but it's also still a horror movie. Yeah, he's he's definitely at like a camp level of chewing the scenery, but he's still like he's not playing it as a joke and the movie's not playing it as a joke it's just very over the top so you can have fun with it but like he's very menacing Absolutely. he's definitely like super evil you know the movie lets him do his like am i a kindly old man or am i a total psycho thing that he likes to do um but i like it really well here because it's not like a personality switch or something it's just like He's pretending, but he's actually terrible. Um, oh, I forgot to mention, he plays the organ at night. Yes. When there's like nightly thunderstorms. Yeah, of course. Like, it's wonderful. Yeah, I, I really liked this movie. It's smart in the sense that like, I don't know, all the like medical dialogue sounds reasonable. Yeah, the directing and cinematography were really great. Um, You mentioned the cinematographer was chosen because he had worked on this set before. Mm -hmm. And I think that extra experience gave them the time and expertise of how to light this to make it, to kind of play around with it. Yeah, I mean, the movie looks great. Um, There's a lot of great, like, use of light and shadow, a lot of great use of um, framing. They're shooting CinemaScope, which is pretty surprising for a cheap movie. Um, And they're using that frame a lot. They're using camera movement really well. There's some good little editing bits, like when Shooter the Monster takes Gottfried's eyes we get like a close-up on Gottfried's eyes as he's like screaming and then we get a close-up on like the blank empty holes uh through the monster's like 
bandage mask and then he like does a superimposition of the bandage mask over the shot of the eyes to communicate like he has Gottfried's eyes now yeah which was nice because it sped things along right yeah that's probably my only um critique of the pacing of the movie mm. was that like we we know how this movie is going to go and they did try to do things to try to do shorthand or speed things up but towards the end it does kind of lag a bit what's odd about that is that towards the start of the movie there's a lot of um things that drag their heels as -hmm. if they're padding for time they do a good job of making them like dramatic and spooky and kind of atmospheric but there is like an entire five minute scene that's just Karloff walking around the house turning the lights off well it's supposed to be like mysterious yeah but you're absolutely right yeah it's like we didn't need to see him walk all the way down to the lab turning the lights off as he went um and then like when shooter discovers the lab it's because he's walking through the whole house um turning off the lights that he turned on yeah um so it's just you know that's unnecessary but i i think the biggest problem in this movie for me is that the ending is kind of botched and a little rushed yes on the one hand, I appreciate that as soon as the cops show up, that we stay with Frankenstein as he's like, well, fuck, guess I'll do this then, rather than going with the police. Do they find him? What's mm-hmm. their reactions coming down to the lab? How do they deal with the monster? Like, we've seen all of that. So sticking with what Frankenstein's going to do made it a little bit unique. But yes, they did botch it. The The ending doesn't work for me for a few different reasons. One is that while I get what you're saying about staying with Frankenstein, it's weird because we see Carolyn like in the monster's arms being like, shooter, take me upstairs. And then we cut to Frankenstein, like overhearing from upstairs, the monster, like handing the girl over and people being like, oh, he must be downstairs. But we don't actually ever see the monster put Carolyn down. And Frankenstein starts going around like overloading the reactor. Like he's basically just turning all the switches on, I guess, but he doesn't say anything. Um, so you kind of have to infer that his thought process is, Oh, I'm going to be caught. I will sort of self-destruct down here. So they don't take me alive. There's no dialogue or anything to really like make that explicit. So for a little while you're like, wait, what's he doing? What's going on here? And I think part of that is because they wanted to have the reveal at the very last bit of Karloff, or sorry, Frankenstein's face, unscarred, unmangled underneath the cast, because the narration over top kind of gives the idea of like he was supposed to continue. So him trying to self-destruct the atomic reactor in the basement would destroy his body. um, But then maybe people would just take shooter frankenstein as sure and i mean that explains why he doesn't want shooter to come in and get killed but like in the moment that feels really weird because it's like you didn't give a shit about that before frankenstein and then the other thing too is that like the monster just sort of shows up in the lab because we haven't been seeing it since a few shots ago and then just kind of like starts smashing things there's no like big explosion or anything um he just like basically opens up the like mri (laughs) machine uh and it starts spewing out like atomic steam and then they just sort of fall over dead and it's so it's not like very dramatically shot it's all done in like one wide shot with no close-ups um it feels like a we ran out of time 
kind of thing. Yeah, I think so. So I don't know whether this would be Karloff or if this is just because so many people have died that he doesn't have anyone to bounce off of. Right. But as the movie went on, it, like I said before, felt like it was lagging. And I thought, like, is this because Karloff is getting tired by the end of the shoot? But that's not necessarily true because they don't necessarily shoot in chronological order of the scenes. Um, I think it's probably more to do with the fact that he doesn't have, like, Gottfried to bounce off of. And he doesn't have, like, Shooter to speak to back and forth. For sure. Um, I think that, yeah, it's a little botched because it's not clear. Um, Speaking of the atomic reactor, I want to talk a little bit about the chronology of the movie. Yeah. So there are actually some in-movie bones being thrown to the idea that it's 1970. Yes. They're pretty subtle. The year is never actually said in dialogue, but Carolyn says it's the 230th anniversary of like the original Frankenstein making his monster. So that made me go, okay, well, 230 years after 1818, which is when the novel came out, is 2048, so that can't be right. 230 years before 1958 is 1728, which is way too uh, early. 230 years from 1970 gets us 1740, which turns out to be the year they're referencing. The weird part is that's not when the novel is set. The novel's set in like the 1790s. Yeah. So why not just have it be like 175 years from 1795? Then there's a scene where... Karloff gives a big monologue explaining the history of Frankenstein because he's doing it for the prologue to the TV movie. And so for one thing, this is Richard Frankenstein the first here, which is odd. Just call him Henry, guys. Well, they want Karloff's character to be Victor. Yeah. Right. And so they emphasize that the guy who made they keep calling the guy who made the monster originally the first Frankenstein, which isn't how families work. But in his like little tombstone, it's Richard Frankenstein the first, which would imply that his like then would be Richard the second, right? So just have him be Victor Frankenstein and have Karloff be like Victor Frankenstein the fifth. That's really easy, and everyone would understand what you're doing. Um, so that's weird. But then the chronology gets really weird too. Uh, on his like gravestone or whatever. It says that Richard Frankenstein the first lived from like 1720 something to 1761. But then the like narration is like, ah, he started making his creature in 1740. And then in the narration, like it's not really narration, but like in this monologue Karloff's giving, he says that it took Frankenstein 17 years to make the creature. And then the creature came to life and presumably it took the creature like four years to kill him. And it's so weird because it's like, that's not... The plot of the book. Yeah. It's also not the plot of like the universal movies, which like presumably Karloff would be able to fill you in on if you'd ever watched them. <laughs> well, maybe that's why they went with Richard just to be like, no, this is our own version of this. Sure. It's just like, it's, it's, it's a it's little weird. weird. It's a little weird. Like why there's these weird specific changes. Um, the other stuff that sort of points to the 1970 thing not only can Karloff buy an atomic reactor by like mail order delivery. Um, to be fair, they do explain that it's expensive. Oh, and sure. Not like every house with a white picket fence can have one. For sure. But it is readily available. It's a thing you can do, which 
it doesn't really matter how rich you are. Like Jeff Bezos can't buy an atomic reactor for his home. Don't give him any ideas, Ben. Like this movie doesn't really understand, I think, what an atomic reactor is is because there's no difference in what the lab looks like before and after reactor um installation there's no like cooling rods here or like big fucking honking ass cooling towers um but he gets the reactor and very frequently it is continually mentioned that after he like turns it off after using it he'll check radiation levels and there will be nothing and even at the end of the movie so that everyone can come in and take the bandages off they make a point of a guy coming in with a geiger counter showing that there's nothing so i think that's supposed to indicate that like oh yeah in the future we'll have this radiation thing figured out and it won't be as dangerous yeah furthermore this is probably the most subtle thing and it's something you could just write off as like he's a mad scientist but there's a bunch of devices in Karloff's lab that just sort of like work like he doesn't have to turn his um tap on to wash his hands it just comes on uh like motion control no there's um there's a foot pedal oh is that what it is because it happens later with the fridge too swinging open on its own um well i don't know about the fridge but in the case of the tap, that's because a surgeon can't like wash his hands and then turn off the tap, right? Sure. So that that's that. Okay. Yeah, I saw the fridge open on its own later and I tied that in with the tap and I was like, oh, is this how it's supposed to be the future? We've got like motion activated appliances. Um, maybe that's not what's going on then. But regardless, yeah, the the it's the future stuff is very mild for sure. I will say that it's ironic that it's set in 1970 because like all of the callbacks that they're doing for like classic horror movies um, and like specifically in the opening scene where Carolyn is running away from the monster as part mm-hmm. of the, the fake movie is very old fashioned. It's all very universal. All very. Yeah, exactly. Tons of fog. She runs and slips and falls. Like it's very like you're doing an homage. Yes. Here in 1958 slash 1970. (laughs) It's very interesting. And I, I really enjoyed it. But yeah, so it's kind of ironic that it, it's like calling back to old fashioned movies in its contemporary times yet they're calling it 1970 right Right. yeah yeah for sure yeah what year is it exactly Um, that's how they're really embracing the universal ethos (laughs) (laughs) um so i got the sense that you didn't really like judy as a character i just got a little frustrated that she was so like mean Mm. like you don't have to work with this director um and if like you hate him but you're still in love with him that's a you problem don't like take it out on everyone else who's working here who are all just trying to do their jobs warn carolyn who is an up-and-coming actress that the director is predatory like even if it's just a whisper network like what the fuck are we doing here Um, So I got frustrated with that. But I will say that, like, she's played so that we have sympathy for her. So I think you had the reaction they want the audience to have. Okay. Well, yeah, I I guess that makes sense because she gets killed first. Right. So I think we're supposed to dislike her. And I was really 
grossed out by that and i didn't like that she got killed first and i didn't like that we were supposed to be like oh yeah she's bitchy and a brunette and wears glasses so fuck her she should die and like no we have to make sure that the like young blonde ingenue is the one who will like live at the end i found that to be really gross and i didn't really like that decision i will say that you know unfortunately judy doesn't have the benefits of like third or fourth wave feminism to tell her not to compete with other women but i thought that she and this might be just the strength of carol adams performance i think so but she came off very three-dimensional to me and she was the most interesting person of the crew members like rose very dynamic but he's also very much like yeah that's sort of a archetypal caricature a caricature of a movie director and like Carolyn's character is she's pretty and she screams. Um, good scream. Good scream. Yeah. And she is pretty. Yeah. Um, Judy also has a really good scream. Yes. Um, and is also pretty. Um, Mike is just kind of there. Um, I don't I didn't I wasn't really grossed out by um, him in her room not leaving as much as you were because like he doesn't really like he's obnoxious about it, but he doesn't like do anything forceful. Um, he's not like it's being... the fact that he came back to her door after and is yelling outside it like oh, he's for sure. Stanley and yeah, I mean, I think that's probably giving the wrong tone of it though. He's it's more he's pathetically drunk than like he's dangerous. I yeah, it's just a different reading that I, we had for sure. What I'm trying to get at with Mike, I guess, is just that like he never becomes anything more interesting than that. I guess what I'm getting at is these characters feel like they're being set up for character arcs that they don't have. Sure. Because like Judy has this chip on her shoulder about the director and she's got this complex thing going on where she loves him, but she hates him. And she's, you know, catty to Carolyn because, you know, she's basically jealous that like Carolyn has Rose's attention now instead of her. And she won't let Mike love her because she's still hung up on Roe and Mike can't get over her, even though like it would clearly be probably better for them to just be with each other rather than both of them continuing to like have these hangups. And there's all this interesting stuff going on. And you feel like, at least I thought at first looking at these characters, like Mike was getting set up to become like hero guy because we were clearly being indicated that we shouldn't like Roe. Like, it was like, oh, yeah, Rose, like, really abrasive and kind of an asshole, so we shouldn't like him. So I thought, like, okay, so Mike's more likable. He's the nice guy between Roe and him in terms of who Judy's going to pick. Sure. So I figured that, like, Mike's, like, drunkenness and kind of patheticness was setting him up for, like, a character arc where he was going to have to step up to the plate and prove to Judy that he was the guy she should go with. And I figured that was going to happen because I sort of thought Judy was being set up to be final girl because she was going to have to go through an arc about like, you know, if all these people start dying and the fact that she's the one who's already the most emotionally fraught at the start of the story, it would be the most interesting to put her through the ringer and have everyone be dying around her. And then, you know, maybe it's down to her and Mike and she finally comes around to Mike and then he gets killed and she's all alone. And like, she has to learn to like, you know, stand up for herself or whatever. Like she was the character who was the most interesting potential to make 
into the victim, like the ultimate victim at the end. And instead, they killed her off first. Well, because it's still a paint-by-numbers horror movie, right? Right, exactly. And it's still a B-movie. It's still cheap. And yeah, they're doing a really great job of covering up the cheapness and a really good job of trying to be inventive with this story and this meta-movie angle. But it's still stuck in its puzzle box, right? Like, it's still stuck within these parameters. Yeah, and that's what disappointed me, right? Like, when Judy gets killed... I felt grossed out because I felt like we were supposed to be like, yeah, that's what the bitch deserves. And that like didn't sit right with me because I was really sympathetic to her and I thought she was the most likable of these people because yeah, she's like upset about stuff, but like she's kind of justified for all of it. Um, And I would have thought that the reason you would give all these characters, all these attributes is so that you could, you know, utilize them but instead we just kind of end up with like the one-dimensional screaming blonde at the end um so i was disappointed by that i really liked this movie um i want to like make that clear i think it's a lot of fun it looks great karloff's having a great time you get everything out of this that i think you want but i think because i was really liking it i was disappointed more when it like misstepped sure well, let's move on to ranking and see how it compares to other movies we liked. For sure. So, Sarah, um, I knew right away that this wasn't as good as Curse of Frankenstein. So I looked for that first. Sure. Where is that ranked? 38. Yeah. Okay. I started making my way down from there then, trying to find, you know, where my ceiling should be. And where I kind of ended up was at 44, uh, below Vampire but above The Seventh Victim. The Seventh Victim is the tournure film about the satanic cult in New York that drives people to suicide. And that's a weird movie, and it's got its creepiness. It's a little um, unfocused due to, like, censorship and editing problems that we discussed in that episode. And I thought that Frankenstein 1970 is very much more, like, on-topic like knows what it is doing, even if it means that it's sort of falling into that formula, as you said. So I thought maybe that this could be better than Seventh Victim. So I made that my ceiling. Looking down from there, we have a lot of cool, good movies in this range. Uninvited, White Reindeer, House of Wax. Um, But I found The Vampire, which is at 54, and is sort of like a Jekyll and Hyde science vampire movie. And I was like, yeah, there's stuff I like about that, but it's really uneven. And I think Frankenstein 1970 is less uneven. So I made that my floor. So my range is 44 to 54. Interesting. I went on a journey <laughs> Okay. when looking at ranking this. Sure. This movie is one that I would categorize as a great contender if you want something that you can kind of like have fun with in a crowd. A Halloween party movie. Exactly. Now, the other movie that I tend to really recommend to watch for a Halloween party movie is The Devil Bat from 1940. That's right. So I went to look where that's ranked, and that's at 164. Um, Frankenstein 1970 is much better than Devil Bat, even just in terms of, like, craft, production value. Yeah. It's just much better. So I was like, okay, well, 
let's look up from here. What is another movie that stands out as like something you would watch with a group because it's like something is going to be like funny or quirky about it. And my eyes were drawn to The Return of Dr. X, which is quirky <laughs> because it's fucking Humphrey Bogart as Dr. X holding a little rabbit. Mm-hmm. Bonkers. Um, That's at number 140. <laughs> Frankenstein 1970 is much better than that. And so I was like, okay, well, fuck. I don't know. Um, What about the, the last Frankenstein movie that Karloff did? That's House of Frankenstein, ranked at number 90. And I was like... Okay, so this is like, we're getting closer, you know, um, definitely better, but we're we're getting closer to a range that feels right. Mm. And then I was like, okay, well, what about like the fact that this was a meta movie? That was a complete surprise. That was kind of neat. The other meta movie on the list is How to Make a Monster from 1958, which we ranked at number 50. I think How to Make a Monster could be better Mm. in the sense of it being a meta movie and Mm. having that be tied into how it's done. Right. Like into the crafting of the whole movie, continuing on with the teens, you know, like having a continuing story with that. That was much more integrated than like the continuing story of the Frankenstein saga. Yeah. The meta movie stuff in how to make a monster is the focus throughout. Whereas this film, the meta movie stuff is a, excuse yes and it's a like supply for victims but you know the film's still like for the most part a straight up frankenstein movie yeah so i kind of made that my ceiling because i was like i feel like you know it could go above or below but it's it's a pretty strong contender and looking down i made my floor i was a teenage frankenstein Hmm. which is number 63 and the reason i did that is because I was a teen Frankenstein is really unique in the way that it still ties in with the books of like the books themes, but it used teens as a gimmick Mm -hmm. and it felt like Frankenstein 1970 kind of tried to use Karloff as a gimmick. Like that's what's going to make this Frankenstein B movie different from curse of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. The gimmick here in Frankenstein 1970 is better done because it's fucking Karloff rather right. than just like, I don't know, make the monster a teen, I guess. So that was my floor. So my range is 50 to 63. So our overlap then is 50 to 54, uh, which is not a lot of movies. Um, looking here, we have How to Make a Monster, Queen of Spades, Back from the Dead, I Was a Teenage Werewolf, and The Vampire. Back from the Dead. It's the wife possesses the new wife. <laughs> Oh, God. And there's the satanic cult in the small town that's making it happen. That movie we applauded for being forward looking. Yes. It felt like a movie that should have been made in the 70s. Ironic, because this is 1970. Um, And this feels like it was made 10 years earlier. Yeah, it feels like it was made in 1958. (laughs) Okay. What about, what do you think about with Teen Werewolf? Not as focused, I feel like. The problem with Teen Werewolf is it's super iconic and not actually good. Well, it's fun. It's fun, but I feel like it doesn't... It's very stupid. (laughs) And I think that it's stupid to a degree that hurts it. 
because even if all the emotional stuff about being a teen and like his relationship with his dad and like, you know, his anger issues and stuff is all very good. The second you start getting to Whit Bissell being like, okay, so I'm going to use hypnosis to transform him physically into a wolf using past lives memories like Bridie Murphy, because as we all know, humans were wolves in a past life. Whereas like this movie, you know, I buy it like. Totally. You know, it makes total sense that you would turn to an atomic reactor instead of lightning. Yeah. To reanimate a monster. And his like backstory about like he was tortured by the Nazis is really cool. Um, the idea that like he's the last of his line. So he wants to make like a perfect, not disfigured version of himself to like carry on is really neat. Like, yeah, this is just not so stupid. So what do you think of um, replacing Teen Werewolf, but coming in below Back from the Dead? I struggle with Back from the Dead because the craft in this movie is so much higher. This movie looks so much better. It's shot so much better. The performances are so much more even. That's true. Back from the Dead is like real bargain bin sometimes. Yeah, the climax happens in a curtained room. Yes. Um, okay. But Queen of Spades is really well done. Oh, yeah. Really we can, well put together. We can put this below Queen of Spades. I'm fine okay. with that. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. I think Martin Scorsese would get mad at me if I put Frankenstein 1970 above Queen of Spades. So Would he really? He really likes Queen of Spades. All right. Entering the list at the new number 52 is Frankenstein 1970 from 1958, directed by Howard W. Koch. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to all of the other episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. If you'd like to subscribe to the show, you can do so using our RSS feed. And if you'd like to leave us a rating or a review on the service that you listen to us on, that really helps us out. You can also help us out by simply spreading the show around through word of mouth or by heading over to patreon.com slash podcast, where if you feel like you want to financially support what we do here, um, you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Your patronage helps go towards our hosting fees. It helps go towards the research time that we take for these movies. It helps go towards the regular bonus episodes uh, that for horror-adjacent movies that come out once a month, like our upcoming one on Buster Keaton's The Haunted House. Patrons at the $5 and $10 level get access to regular bonus content, and patrons of all levels get to participate in the monthly votes for the horror adjacent bonus episode. So check all that out at patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. So Ben, what are we watching next week? Next week, Sarah, we are watching a movie that features a prologue that explains that the movie's so scary. It just might kill you. It's <laughs> the screaming skull from 1958. Um, were they going to give us some life insurance policies? It's definitely a ripoff on the macabre thing, for sure, but yeah. it's not a William Castle film. Okay, okay, okay. Cool, cool, cool. Well, we will see you, well, maybe not if we die, I guess, um, next week, Creatures of the Night. 
If there's an episode next week, the movie wasn't scary enough. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.